0: Welcome back to the Salary to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Jake Richards, and you're listening to the show that helps you make the leap from nine to five to small business ownership. Around here, we like to leave the sexy startups for Silicon Valley and focus on achievable, profitable strategies to become your own CEO by either buying small businesses that already exist or starting your own. But today's guest is unique because he's done both. Zach Smith was an early employee at Uber, and he was part of the team that turned Uber into one of the most recognizable and dominant tech companies in the world. But when COVID hit and mass redundancies rolled out, Zach found himself starting anew. He tried out the solopreneur consultant path for a while, but it wasn't enough. He wanted to build something, but not from scratch. He wanted to buy then build. Strangely, he ended up buying what could essentially be called the Uber of dental businesses. And here's the kicker. He did it four times faster than the average person buying a business. I love this conversation because it was only two months after Zach had taken over his new business. All of the highs and lows of the business buying process as well as the strategies that work best were fresh in his mind. And it was his first one. He's a first time business buyer. So if you've got a regular nine to five job right now, but the idea of buying a business excites you, you could be in Zach's position in six months from today. That's literally how close you are to buying into and scaling your own small business. Zach shares the step-by-step process he took to buy his first business in only four months and lays out all of the potholes that almost tripped him up, the ones that, thanks to this interview, you can avoid. So get ready for the inside scoop from a brand new first-time business buyer. And who knows, you could be in Zach's situation quicker than you think. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Man, what I'm most looking for today is diving into your first acquisition because this is something that's very fresh for you. You've just lived it. All the highs and lows, I'm sure, are top of mind, many of which you're still probably going through. And it's highly applicable information for a lot of us because sometimes I find it's the best to speak to someone that may be three months, one year down the line than someone that's 20 years down the line. They obviously offered two different perspectives, but this is equally, yes, if not more important for a lot of people that are listening to this. And I can't wait, man. Yeah, let's do it. I'm happy to chat about it. We will go deep on the whole acquisition journey, but why don't you just give us a little bit of a rundown of what you've just acquired and why?
1: Perfect. Yeah, so I was at Uber up remember, until yeah. May of 2020, and I got laid off there in early COVID. There was a pretty big round of layoffs as yep. there weren't a lot of right. rides happening. Exactly, yeah. So I did almost three years, I guess about three years of like just freelance consulting. So I was, oh, um, you know, working with other early stage tech companies on a fractional kind of fractional operations, executive type work. And I liked it a lot. And then to some extent it was a little bit of a owning my own business totally. test, but I, I had no intention of like hiring anybody building or it like it yeah. was, it was just, yeah, it was more of that like solopreneur thing. That's kind of trendy at the moment than, Yeah, than really building a business, I guess. And I think that's what ultimately got me like interested in doing something else is I realized like. It's probably the most efficient time for money trade I've ever made in my career. Like yeah. I was able to command pretty good rates and control my time and like had a lot of control over it, but I knew I wasn't building anything. I knew I wasn't going to be able to like sell this to someone or
0: as a stopgap.
1: Yeah. If if I stopped doing the work, there wasn't anything that was gonna happen. And yeah. I, I I wanted to be building something. And so I was starting to get that itch. I suppose there's a world of building a consulting agency, but I just wasn't passionate enough about that. It was a great learning experience. It was a good opportunity to see some different businesses, probably see some things I didn't want to do. This is one of those really good problems to have, but I joined one of the most successful startups of the last decade at, at Uber and saw something like everything. This is a stretch and there are definitely periods where this wasn't true, but like everything just sort of worked, right? Like it was an incredible product at an incredible time. The product market fit was there. It just took off and grew. And it can be easy when you're in that setting to feel like, oh, we just like do these things and we could do this anywhere. It doesn't have to be this business and it, you know, it doesn't always work that way. And so to go work often with other ex Uber people on new businesses that were struggling a bit more to find product market fit or trying things and not having the same success was a good reminder that business is hard and particularly venture backed startup business is hard. I think those were good things for me to see and probably in some ways pushed me a little towards a slightly lower risk profile in a SMB type space than maybe going the like, I'm going to found the next big tech startup venture backed
0: thing. Was that ever something that you considered before those experiences? Were you ever thinking like, that's kind of my roadmap? But then with those experiences, you came out of going, "Mm, maybe something else.
1: I think when you're in tech, it's hard. I mean, anytime you're in any sort of industry space, you start to like, your world shrinks to that a little bit, right? And so I definitely had some, like, I could totally see myself being a co-founder somewhere and and doing something like that. I think the two things that kind of held me back for, or were one, I never, I'm not sure I ever felt like I had the idea, right? Like I, I've never had that, like, oh, this is gonna be the thing that's gonna change the world. And I think I'm decent at like recognizing something that might be that when I see it. And so joining Uber when there were only a couple hundred employees, I guess is like a, a reasonable proof point of me having done that at least once. But I've never felt like I've had that, that initial idea. And so I certainly kept my eye out. And as I was consulting for folks, if I had found a business that was like, oh, this, this can work and I can see how I can be an important lever to like really make this take off. I think it would have been something I would have seriously considered, but I also never felt like I have to do this. It wasn't like I am going to build the next unicorn tech company as like. The blink has went on. Yeah. So I am now the owner of American dental care which is a dental discount plan, uh, based in Houston, Texas, where I live. And so dental discount plan is kind of an alternative to traditional dental insurance, at least from an American perspective. I don't process actual insurance claims, but I have a network of dentists who have agreed to provide their services to cash paying customers who are members of my plan at a fixed rate schedule. And so I bring in dentists to accept the plan. I find patients members to be part of the plan, I connect them. It's a little bit of a
0: two sided marketplace in the dental world. That's so interesting actually, because that's exactly what just came to mind then is two sided marketplace and coming from Uber, you've almost done that on the tech side in a lot of ways, because obviously you're matching riders and drivers. So there's randomly when you hear dental insurance company, you're thinking, okay, what does this have to do with anything? But then you actually start to get into the fundamentals of it. There is some similarities based on what you're doing.
1: For sure. When I first saw the listing for this business, you see dental in the title. And I almost didn't read any further, right? I think that would have been easy to do. And then I actually read the teaser and I was thinking through it going, I don't think I need to know anything really about the dental world to potentially be able to do this. This is mostly customer acquisition and lead generation and and marketplace business. And I spent seven years at Uber. Building a two sided marketplace. And it's not going to be exactly the same thing, but I think I maybe have some relevant experience that I could bring to this. And so once I got that one level deeper into the information, how I ended up focusing more on, on this business.
0: Lesson there being something that when you're buying and looking for a business, something that's easy to understand and not necessarily industry relevant for you, but rather skill set relevant to you. So if we think about that buy then build whole concept, it's about finding the skill sets that matches the growth profile of that business. And it sounds like that's the kind of approach that you took there.
1: Yeah, it definitely was the type of approach I took. I do find sometimes that in talking to brokers as I was in the search process, not having more of an industry target was I felt like sometimes a barrier to getting a deeper relationship with a broker. I think they it's easier for them to compartmentalize people into a specific industry and to send them things that way. But for me, I knew I had a geographic focus. I had recently moved my family here to Houston and wanted to stay here and had had some of those sort of bigger criteria that I knew I wanted to, to land on. But I was pretty open-minded to what the actual business would be. That's how I thought about it. And that's why I read almost anything that fit the location and size type profile that I was looking for. I like thinking more about skills and abilities and what I want to do more than a specific industry. But I did find that a little bit tricky in managing broker relationships a little bit.
0: That's interesting. So you, did you go 100% the broker route or did you do any of your own sort of like direct approach or did you go through any, you know, I call them gatekeepers, like whether they be accountants, lawyers, financial planners, this kind of thing, or did you just go hundred percent broker on your search?
1: So, so yes, I, I stuck to pretty much a purely brokered search. And that's not to say that I wasn't looking at biz by sell and any of the other sort of big places that we all look. My strategy was I used biz as a way to find brokers. So when I saw a decent business, whether it really met the rest of my criteria or not, but if it was in my geographic area, I would look at that listing. And if there was a seemingly reputable broker attached to it, I would go find that broker's website and likely try to reach out to them through there. And if I had a, enough of a connection to the business that I saw, I might ask about that business specifically. But I kind of used BizBuySell as a filter to hopefully find brokers and then build a, a bit more of a one to one relationship with them there rather than kind of actually sending the requests through BizBuySell.
0: And seemingly reputable was like they had a decent webpage and had some <laughs> listings. Like what, what's seemingly reputable? It's a fair question.
1: Seeming, seemingly reputable is not just laundromathouston at gmail.com as a, as a contact list. There was one of those that I did reach out to directly through Biz because the business sounded interesting enough. And then the person on the other side of that anonymous Gmail account responded, sure, happy to send you information. Can you send me like a full financial profile? And I said, look, I expect to share my financial information with a lot of people through this process, but I don't really expect to share it with an anonymous person who I don't even have like a name for or can't find anything about. Can you like point me to your website or something? Their response was, hey, this is how it works. Send it or don't. I didn't send it. Damn. And look, maybe it was a great business and and a rep. Like I, I'll never
0: know, but I wasn't comfortable with with that level of sharing everything, so I, I didn't. I think if it's that early on and there's already those kind of red flags, it's pretty safe to just go. You know what? There's enough fish in the sea for me to just keep moving along here. But I'm curious, what was attractive about this opportunity? What was it about this opportunity? Like, yeah, this is cool. I like this. So I think there were there were a couple of things that jump
1: out to me. One was the marketplace business piece of it that we've already chatted about. The other, in this case, was so so it's a smaller business. It's a it's a business that is doing less than a million in revenue in a year right now, has decent margins, but is is not a big not a huge business and had been shrinking. It was the seller who I bought it from had been kind of checked out of the business for a number of years and COVID was not particularly kind to getting people to go open their mouths on dental chairs. And so the business lot of lost a lot of subscribers through that period as well. And so it had been shrinking and I realized that between both the size and the sort of turnaround profile of the business, I think I had less competition in terms of who else might be looking at a deal. And so when it was a deal that I could tell that I might have both some skills, relevant experience from the marketplace perspective, and also I maybe didn't have a lot of direct competition for, I got more interested in, in really digging into it and seeing like, can I get this business at a price that makes sense? That is an acceptable risk profile for me. And so sure, I may be taking on some more risk because it's a smaller business and because it's a business that is in need of a turnaround, but it is small and therefore the price isn't as high. And so I'm taking less personal risk for the business and I can really Get my hands around this thing and and maybe do it myself that was pretty attractive to me i think those were the those were the the
0: main factors that got me interested in this one it's really interesting because it's quite contrarian in what is let's say the typical advice is like first business more than a million in revenue not a turnaround business i mean you got the skills match but it's cool to see man like you obviously like you said you got it to a an acceptable risk profile for yourself was there a formal approach you took for that
1: in some ways i was just a little bit figuring it out as I went. In other ways, my original background, I have an undergrad degree in finance. I got a master's in accounting, like the the business financials side of of a business, I'm, I'm able to wrap my head around. And so I built a model of, you know, as I did my due diligence, I took three years of financials and basically rebuilt them myself in a spreadsheet and sort of did that analysis and then came up with a few different, you know, what could the next three to five years of the business look like if it keeps shrinking, if it stays flat, if I can get it to grow. And I think really where I landed with like, okay, this is an acceptable risk for me is that in that modeling, I basically determined that the, what I believe is maybe not like the worst, worst case, but like the 80% bad case of this business is it continues to shrink a bit and I pay off my seller note and I pay back my own investment and I'm out three years of time and experience learning in a business, but basically break even on the on the financial exercise. And that was a pretty acceptable downside to me. And so then it was more about, well, what is the upside, right? What is, if I can get this thing to grow 20% a year within, what does it look like? It starts to look pretty exciting and, you know, more than that could, could be even cooler. But basically, as I looked at the range of possible outcomes, I felt like I had a pretty acceptable downside risk in this particular situation for the price I was paying and the size of the business and all of those things. And, uh, like I was excited about what I could potentially build it into.
0: Yeah, that's a really important thing, right? I've heard, I've spoken with a few people in this space, and obviously I'm only just getting started, but building out the financial statements from scratch seems to be something that you just must do if for nothing more than just getting your head around everything. And also dealing with a lot of, like, I spoke to one guy recently who his first business, like, I overpaid because I put too much trust in the financial statements of a small business. And because they're not the most transparent or they're quite opaque in a lot of their numbers, it's really important that you take those steps and then run through what the different scenarios look like in terms of contraction, staying stable, growing, et cetera. So that's, that's a really key call out.
1: Yeah. I think that, that makes sense. And I, I do think because this business was as small as it was, and because I had the background that I had, I did the diligence, the quality of earnings mostly myself, right? It was hard at this size of a business to justify a five-figure due diligence expense on, on a quality of earnings type provider. I think those people haven't worked with them, so I can't say this from experience. I think in a lot of cases, particularly for a bigger business, or if you have less of the experience, it makes a ton of sense to get some true professional outside help. Part of what was interesting and fun and attractive about this particular acquisition for me was because of the relatively small size of it, it encouraged me to do more of the work myself. And so I think I've learned more through that process. And the risk that I was taking on by relying on my own work is a little bit smaller. And so a lot of people who are in this ETA space buying businesses are buying a $2 million business with a $1.5 million SBA backed loan and a personal guarantee. And that's a different risk situation than what I did for both better and worse. Frankly, it's potentially a more stable business that has less potential downside concerns, but also If you hit those concerns the consequences are a lot higher and so i have a little bit of a different risk profile in this particular business which is fun and interesting for me and maybe a little bit unique but works for my situation and so that's kind of the the approach i was able to take
0: it's kind of trading off probability of outcome for like scale of consequence of outcome i'm curious how many days are you into actually owning like where are we at now since you've made the acquisition how many days are you in right now
1: so i Closed on the business at the very end of September, and it is now early December. So we are, we have, I have two full months under my belt, which both feels like a lot compared to where I felt
0: six weeks ago. And also, I feel very much like I know I'm just getting started. And what's your role? Are You just are you operating the business? All hands on deck. How's that look?
1: Yeah, I've gone full time into the business. The first month that I was operating it I still had a little bit of consulting work from what I had been doing previously that I was trying to kind of wrap up and unwind and and finish up some contracts so that I could focus on this and that was kind of done early November and so now for the last month this has basically been
0: my my full-time focus totally and you had a bit of a smile as you were talking about diving into these first couple of months has there been some things that have just completely caught you off guard like what don't they teach you in the books and what is The big shocks about, okay, I'm in the driving seat now. I didn't expect this, but I've got to adapt and and overcome.
1: There have been some surprises, but I would say I'm not surprised to have been surprised, if that makes sense. I knew there's no way that doing the due diligence process was going to actually teach me everything about what's actually happening here day to day. And so there were going to be things that I'd figure out or learn and be surprised about once I actually got started. And that's, that's definitely been true. But I had prepared myself for that possibility. And so it's not necessarily a shock. I think at a high level, like the variable that in my opinion is probably hardest to figure out in a diligence process as you get in is the people, right? You can see them on paper. You maybe have an opportunity. I got to meet the sort of office manager before we finished closing the acquisition. But the people dynamics are always going to be an interesting and sort of hard to really diligence piece of acquiring a business. And so. That was definitely the case in, in this situation. And I developed a pretty good relationship with the, the seller that I bought the business from. I like him, enjoyed working with him through the process. And that's, I think is an important part of, of the actual acquisition process. But as someone who had been sort of pulling away from the actual business itself for a number of years, his relationship with the people here or their relationship to him was maybe, I would say strained a little bit, I think is a fair way, fair way to describe it. and so both meeting the people that that are here and getting to know them and getting to understand them and also to understand how they feel about the business and about the way it's been led and managed and owned for the last few years is another dynamic that I couldn't have
0: diligence right and so figuring some of that out was tricky I, I guess people are the most unpredictable part even just one look dealing with yourself is difficult enough when you're dealing with a team that's with their own experiences perspectives opinions all that kind of thing how many people are in this business when you were taking it over
1: yeah. When I closed on the business, I had four employees. We ran the business myself and those four employees for the next month. And at the end of that first month, I let two of the four employees go. To some extent, that had to do with maybe their own skill sets and abilities. But the biggest factor there was I could tell that the way the business was being run and the roles that they were in was not going to be an efficient and effective way to grow the business the way I wanted to grow it. So. Three of the four employees here were essentially in phone sales, outbound roles to consumers who are buying a relatively low ticket item in terms of a membership that starts as low as $12 a month. And the volume of calls and the volume of time they just spent leaving voicemails or not really having meaningful conversations. And then the close rate of those consumers, it just wasn't going to be a way to build this business. The business had been built. 15, 20 years ago off of TV commercials and people calling in and that process worked then and today's more e-commerce driven world, it wasn't working the same way. And the business strategy, the sales strategy had not adapted to that. And so we had people in roles that were sort of a legacy of how the business had been built a long time ago. And it just didn't make sense to keep folks in those roles. So I, I had to, it was both an obviously right thing to do after I committed to a, Thirty day stretch. If I'm going to run this business, basically the way it's been done historically, I'm going to try to put a little bit of my own thought into into how we do that specifically. I ran my own ad campaigns and things like that to bring in leads, but otherwise tried to run it the way it was. And at the end of the thirty days, was where I was like, "This is not going to be a profitable way to to build this business," and, and let
0: those folks go. Hundred percent. I'm reading um, Traction by Gina Wickman at the moment. Yeah, that I literally was just reading this morning. Right people, right seats. And uh, as you're saying that, it just sounds like the seats have changed.
1: Correct. Yeah, great book. I read that while I was in the buying process and am slowly working towards finding the right ways to
0: implement it. And it feels like killer SMB entrepreneur after killer SMB entrepreneur is just like, yeah, we run EOS. And you just keep hearing it times like, okay, I've got to read this book because it feels just <laughs> so mean, comprehensive. It's like enough good people <laughs> basically vouch for it. Okay, I'm sold. And um, so far, so good. Okay, so basically 30 days to see how it's all running. It sounds like you're doing a lot of, you're really approaching this in quite an analytical and experiential way to assess where do the opportunities lie? And I guess that comes maybe from some of your experience prior.
1: Probably does. I would say I've spent a lot less time in spreadsheets since I actually bought the business and started working in it than I did when I was doing the diligence on the business. I was probably even more analytical in that period, at least quantitatively analytical, it's probably been a little bit more qualitatively analytical now that I'm in the business. And that comes from trying to make sure I understand now that I'm in the business, what is it that customers are actually telling me they want this product to be? What is it that my employees are telling me about what they're hearing from customers or how they, how their day-to-day works? There's a really interesting challenge in, in, the advantage of buying a, in this case, 30 plus year old business is there always is existing customers and existing revenue. And like there, there's an actual business here being run. The hard part of that is there's 30 years of history and process debt and all of these different elements that are both, it's nice that some of that is there and also it's not what you want it to be. And so you've got to figure out both how to sort of change what already exists and also start building towards the future that you want. And that combination can feel overwhelming certain days. And so I think I'm getting better at working through it, but I described the first month in particular as I've often described any new job as kind of drinking from a fire hose. Uh, you know, you've just got so much coming at you and, and coming into an existing business as the owner. I felt more like I had like a firing squad of fire hoses at me from every direction and I was just getting drowned. And that noise starts to, to quiet a little bit the further you get into it. I'm not sure that there's really any way to avoid that feeling, but that's one of the interesting dynamics of getting started in an already existing business.
0: That's a really interesting insight that process debt, right? Because I think in this acquisition space, particularly to first time acquisition entrepreneurs or whatever you want to call it, investors, business owners, et cetera. One of the big thing that's, that's plugged is like, it's great. You go in there, they've got a team, they've got process, they've got paying customers. They got, but actually in this case, especially maybe for a turnaround style business with what you're dealing with, a lot of that actually needs to be cleaned up in your case. So that's, I guess, one of the unique challenges that you're facing is the fact that the typical things that are plugged as major advantages, whilst they still exist to a certain extent, they also present their own unique issues to kind of handle. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to think about it.
1: I I think it was probably those process things are probably a little bit more urgent in a turnaround situation than they may be if you buy a business that's been stable or growing for a number of, number of years where you've got a little bit more time to really just let it run itself and figure it out. I also think though, that for most of us who go into this space and think about doing an acquisition, one of the lowest hanging fruits of, you know, how can I add some value and get this thing going is to take what may be an older, less tech savvy, uh, retiring business owners processes and modernize them a bit. And so I I think in most businesses that I would have looked at, there would have been some element of that. But I think the pace at which I wanted to execute on some of those things is probably accelerated with it being a turnaround case.
0: Yeah, You might have given it 90 days or something just to bet in and see how things are running, speak with the team a little bit more, speak with more customers before you make those changes because it wasn't as urgent, I guess. I think that's right. Did you ever consider starting a business versus buying a business? I did consider it. I think that
1: comes a little bit back to the risk profile piece of things. You know, what? any starting a business from scratch means potentially a bigger upfront investment before there's any actual revenue coming in the door. And I will say there are a couple of times as I was going through the search process to kind of go back to when I was pre-LOI searching, I saw some businesses like this is an interesting business, but I don't know. I might be interested in doing this business, but I don't think I need to buy it to do this. I could pretty easily just go start this and do it myself. And so there were definitely instances where I saw that kind of possibility. I was focused enough on an acquisition approach for right now that I didn't, I don't think I super seriously considered that at any point. I closed on my company four months, five months after seriously starting to search, which is I think pretty rare. And I chalk that up to luck certainly being part of it, but also sort of that willingness to do a smaller business and having a different risk appetite and things like that. If I'd been searching for 18 months or two years and I started to consistently see these examples of why would I buy this? I think I can just build it myself from scratch. I probably would have started more seriously thinking about that. I'm not opposed to it, but it just wasn't what happened in in my particular scenario.
0: Yeah, definitely. I've thought a lot about that with service businesses because that's the thing that I guess for me personally, I feel the most natural inclination towards that more service-based style. And I find myself questioning, okay, but what am I buying versus... What am I starting? But that's definitely something that's been playing on my mind as I've been going through this process. This leads really nicely into the fun stuff, which is actually the process of buying the business. What were your first steps? You said it was a four to five month play. I mean, that's crazy fast compared to normal. What were those first steps that set you off on such a strong trajectory? So I'm leaving out the time before I committed to actually doing
1: a search, which was when I. My entry point was really reading Walker Dybul's buy then build. I had a, a friend who I'd worked with at Uber who said he'd been thinking about buying a business and had read this book and thought it was really interesting. And it's like, oh, I hadn't really thought about this. This was about a year ago, I suppose, uh, late 2022. I read it sort of slowly this past spring, uh, spring 2023, as I was doing my consulting business. And as I read it, I, it just seemed like a really compelling, interesting idea of a way to sort of build something. And as as I was reading it, I was also starting to feel the itch I talked about earlier in terms of, I like this freelance consulting work that I'm doing, but I don't feel like I'm building anything and I'm not sure it's what I want to do long-term. And so these things sort of dovetailed pretty well together. And so it was, uh, you know, June, 2023, this past summer where I had a, one of my clients kind of reduced their contract of work with me. Our our retainer was reduced and I had some more time and I was feeling less motivated, less excited to go find the next consulting client. And so what I decided to do was to treat buying a business as a new client. Basically, I was going to carve out the type of time that I would for a new client to actually explore a search and I knew I was going to go at least for now, kind of the self-funded route, just do it myself, do it as if it was a client, as if it was a project. And and that's how I set off on it. So that was June. I, I started doing the making my filters and biz by cell and looking at all the different sites. And that's how I started the process of then finding brokers and then started reaching out to some brokers and then started looking at some sims. And it happened pretty quickly. And so American Dental Care is the only LOI I submitted. It's the only business that I did due diligence on or did any of the rest of the steps. And at every step of the process, even just in like coming up with the offer and submitting it, it felt like, a well, at least this will be a good rep, a good opportunity to, to try this. And then they accept the LOI. I was like, cool, I get to do a rep of due diligence. And I don't know if this is actually going to go anywhere, but let's do the due diligence. And I just kept kind of passing through each gate and kind of honestly got to a couple of weeks before we were going to close when it was like pretty clear we were going to end up there. I was like, I think I'm actually buying a business. And so it surprised me a little bit how fast that happened. And yeah, it just, it just kind of all fell into place pretty quickly in, in my situation.
0: What I'm really hearing there is basically just take more swings because you never know which swing is going to hit. It could be the first or it could be the hundredth. But if you don't step up to the plate, you're never going to know. And you're going to be sitting there thinking, take a few steps on this track, then change track. And that's actually quite reassuring for a lot of people that just like get up and take a swing because you never know. It could be you passing through those gates at each step, almost surprising yourself at how quickly it can kind of pass through.
1: I think sometimes there's a local ETA group here in Houston that, that I've been kind of going to monthly happy hours for and stuff. And I went to the first one, I think actually the day that I met the seller. And when we came back to the next one a month later, I was under LOI and in due diligence. And and the next one, two months later, I'd actually bought a business. And I don't think anyone else in that room of 30 to 50 people I'm not saying no one had made any progress. I'm sure there'd been some LOIs submitted and things, but I have to have learned more in that three-month period from just actually doing this process. Even if it hadn't ended, ended in an acquisition, I think I would have learned a lot more than the people who spent those few months continuing to just read teasers or whatever steps it were it was that they were taking. I think sometimes an acquisition, entrepreneurship through acquisition is an easy thing to think about and, and get excited about doing and build some spreadsheets about your potential investments and spend some free time browsing, biz by seller, whatever it is. But to actually like, take the action and decide to put your money or your time or your whatever, kind of where your mouth is on it. I think it's actually relatively few people who get all the way there and do it. Like I said, I got a little bit lucky that it all happened on this first try, but I do think just being willing to take that next step and actually sort of do that gut check and say, am I in this? Am I actually doing this? Makes a difference in why I'm sitting where I am today in this really dated office that I acquired <laughs> from the
0: seller. What I think is really key, which you mentioned a little bit earlier, was carving out that time and treating it like a client. I think that's probably one of the, if I was to think about what you've described just then about the people that three months later you go back and nothing's changed versus you passing through these gates, having that dedicated time in the day, I dare say that's a that's a very strong reason behind why things progress in the way they progress because you are committed to that time. I agree with that.
1: I think that's particularly true in the sort of pre-offer, pre-LOI stage. I think that's maybe kind of the loneliest part of a search, right? You're really on your own if you're doing it without a partner or without kind of investors. And you've got to be diligent about what is the type of target I'm looking for and what are the steps I'm taking? What's kind of my strategy for how I'm going to do this? And how long have I been doing that strategy? And does it seem to be bearing fruit? And if not, what do I need to change or do a little bit differently? Yeah, I treated it like it was A problem to be solved the way I would for a client in my consulting business or the way I do now with a strategic goal for this business. Am I actually making progress was a kind of important question that I tried to ask myself relatively frequently and thankfully I guess the answer was yes I did make
0: some progress so. And how did you measure that beyond the obvious of you had the benefit of like wow everything fell into place really nicely but was there actually a plan of like at some point assessing your execution and whether it's lining up, because for example, I use something, I just use a simple execution scorecard where I have a few set goals, I have the tasks that I need to do for the week for those. At the end of the week, I get a score if I complete those tasks. And then at the end of the week, I can very clearly see, okay, I only hit 60% or I hit 90%. Okay, so if I stack these up for long enough and I'm not achieving my goals, I can pretty quickly see if it's the plan is crap or I'm crap. Um, because, (laughs) because I'm not executing, I've got, I've got low execution scores, but is there anything that you used on your journey that was helpful in that respect for measuring your execution?
1: I try to keep my systems as simple as possible. And, and again, I probably would have gotten more complicated had it taken longer, right? I think I was actually pretty close kind of the same week that this first seller conversation happened that led to me sitting here. I was starting to put a little bit more structure around, okay, here are the number of Brokers, I want to talk to so and give Some KPIs, leading the, indicators. Yes, it's, yeah, exactly. Some, some of the like, what are the metrics that are most likely to move the needle? And I was, I was preparing to sort of track and hold myself accountable to those. And then this hit, and the list of priorities changed a little bit. So, so that's kind of probably more how I would think about it because of how quickly it happened. I sort of gave myself the summer to sort of experiment with it and, and not have a lot of direction with it, and was planning to then use kind of the the back half of the year or the kind of September to December period to say like, okay, let's set some more concrete leading indicator type goals and, and make sure we're hitting those.
0: And I, I didn't get there. I went and did due diligence. instead I think that's really, that is a really interesting insight though, right? Because I can't tell you the number of times where it's just like, okay, for me, the first plan is not the plan 99% of the time, but you almost need to expect give yourself a little bit of time, like what you've just described to experiment a little, to learn a bit more, to even know what you need to do, to even know what the leading indicators, to even know what you're aiming at. So it sounds like that's a key lesson there, which is when you're starting out in this space, be relentless with your action, but be a little bit flexible with the plan itself and give yourself time to experiment and learn because you don't even know what you're trying to do at the start.
1: I think that's totally true. And and actually an example that comes to mind kind of from the first month of actually running the business was I had this team of, of phone sales people and I was trying to think about, okay, how do I actually like motivate and compensate them effectively to go and sell the plan? And I reached out to a, a friend of mine who has led sales teams in the past. And I said, here's kind of how I'm thinking about it. And this kind of incentive or this kind of commission or this kind of bonus, and, you know, how, are these good ideas? And he, he asked me to tell him a little bit more about the business. And, and as we had the conversation, he probably said more clearly what I had been starting to think a little bit, but hadn't hadn't really identified, which was this way of selling this plan is is like not probably going to work very well. Like you, you need to be a little bit careful about promising these incentives if this structure is really almost never going to actually be profitable. Like you're setting up milestones and goals towards a thing that's not actually going to work is not going to be very impactful. And so I think that's 100% possible to be true in really any area and a
0: search definitely being one. That's so interesting because before this, you described the fact that you, know, you didn't see that this was a good opportunity to keep running down this pathway of trying to sell, like direct sell on the phones. I assumed that this was a low-hanging fruit you identified prior to the acquisition, but this is actually something, you know, maybe you'd been thinking about it, but you weren't totally sure and it became very clear in the first month. That's right.
1: Yes, I had suspicions. I knew that I wanted to go to a more online first e-commerce-ish approach. But I guess I probably expected, assumed thought that we could probably still use the phone sales team effectively in some capacity, that if we could get enough volume going, that would make, it would make sense to keep them or use them. And I do still think for what it's worth, there may be a place for that to come back as I do some more sales to like businesses and groups and things rather than individuals. I think a heavier sort of sales headcount potentially makes more sense in that space. That's a Q1 24 project, I hope. But yeah, I, I had not fully realized it took some of that outside perspective of someone saying like, walk me through the numbers of how this is gonna work again for me to go. Yeah, I guess that the, the number of leads coming in would have to grow to a level or, or the conversion rate would have to improve to a level that there's no data to indicate is likely to happen for this to actually be a way for me to sell this product right now. And so rather than trying to make something sort of impossible happen, let's take a step back and make sure we actually have the right objective, the right strategy, the right plan. And then once we know what that is, we can build the right systems and incentives and things for it. But we had kind of the wrong, the wrong strategy. And so no matter how we set up the execution of it,
0: it wasn't, I don't think going to work. Key lesson there being seek external counsel and have people that you can reach out to for advice. And it sounds like that was a priority because you'd even started that in the search by going to these meetups and interacting with other people. And I think that's something that I've learned. Having for the past few years working overseas and living overseas and working online and kind of running things out of my home office, it's very easy to get trapped in the not the solopreneur mindset because you're trying to build a business, but just the head down mode where you're not actually talking to other people and getting external opinions. And that one perspective from that five minute, ten minute, fifteen conversation can dramatically shift the entire next year.
1: It's a great point. And I will say, maybe sounds similar to you, I have a tendency to, to be very like, I can do this. I can figure this out. This will be fun project for me to solve and teach myself and do these things. And every time I have those, I guess to your point, maybe more than I even give myself credit for, I'm good at going and finding some of those perspectives, but it's not always my first, my first instinct or my first tendency. I I do like to be pretty self-sufficient and I've never regretted the outside help that I've gotten as I've, as I've worked on this.
0: Yeah, it's wild. I'm, I'm seeing that more and more every day just by having these conversations. It's crazy, the different ideas and stuff you're getting. This probably leads really nicely into when you actually have found the business that you've like, you've run a bit of diligence, you've submitted your LOI, and you're starting to negotiate and talk with the seller. You mentioned that you actually had quite a good relationship with him and that was a key part of that process. Can you just break down a little bit about that process that you had and any kind of key lessons or maybe things that you'd do different?
1: Yeah, I think that I tried, and I'm pretty sure I'm guessing that I'm what I'm about to say. If you go and read the sort of post LOI chapter of buy them build, you're going to read a lot of what I'm about to say, which is once we were under LOI and frankly, even before that, honestly, even probably from my first meeting with the seller, I was trying to sell myself to him as a person who could be the right person to take this business into its next chapter. And I was trying to make him feel like he was sort of my teammate in figuring out how we're going to get this deal done. And how did you sell yourself? Like, what were the type of things that you were trying to be like, yeah, I'm a good fit for this? In my in my meeting, my first meeting with him, as I described what got me interested in the business, I did that two-sided marketplace, Uber tie-in, right? And so I explained... What I see in your business, and I don't know if it was ever how he had really thought about it, because I think this kind of marketplace business idea is a little bit more of a modern tech approach. And he'd been doing this since the late eighties. I see a two-sided marketplace. I have experience in two-sided marketplaces. I've operated online and I can see from what you've written in the, in the SIM that like, you think a better online sales approach is what you need. I've got the tech background. I've got the marketplace background. I think I could be a good fit. This business. Tell me more about it. Let me learn about it. Tell me about your experience with it. And I think from that initial conversation, he was excited to hear someone bring that type of approach to it. And so, so that was a great start. Frankly, he was also just a very motivated seller. He was ready to be out of the business. And in that first call, he's we talked about timelines. He's like, I would love to have sold this to you yesterday. And so, I, I kind of knew, I knew from the beginning that he was a highly motivated seller. And that's not to say that there weren't some moments where I wondered whether we'd get all the way there or not, but that was super helpful. And as we went through the process, one, I tried to keep that speed in mind. That was obviously a priority to him. And so at every step that I could, if I had an action item and I could do something about it, I made it a top priority to keep things moving, to show him progress, to show him that I wasn't just kicking tires or slow walking things or or whatever. Like every step I could, I wanted him to see that I was moving forward on it. But I also tried to Put some personal touches in there. We went and got lunch at one point fairly early, in the process just to have a not business and numbers focused conversation, but more of a personal conversation. I tried to make sure that I kept the broker involved in all that. We was a brokered search and she was gonna be an important part of, she'd already done some important work to convince him that his business was worth less than he would have wanted it to be worth. And so I knew she was an important advocate towards getting us across the finish line. And I tried to keep her involved while also building that kind of personal connection with the seller.
0: That's really good. There's a couple of key nuggets there. A, you highlighted your skill set match. B, you took the time to show interest in him and the business to actually ask a lot of questions. Three, you kept in mind what was important for him in this negotiation, which was speed. So you always kept on the front foot and then those personal touches to just establish that kind of teammate kind of vibe with this guy. So the combination of those four things sounds like a pretty winning formula.
1: It worked in this case. Uh, I, I think it would work in other cases too. And that's not to say that there weren't there were some hard conversations during the diligence process of, you know, I need to understand why this expense line item looks the way that it does. Like it doesn't make sense. Help me understand why it is what it is. Is it right? How do we how do we get it right? Or I need some more documentation around some regulatory thing and how we're gonna manage the transition of it. In fact, we haven't talked about this, but at, at LOI, we had an asset sale deal structure and we actually ultimately closed as a stock sale due to some regulatory and contract related things that I think would be pretty rare for a business of this size to really go that route, but it ended up making sense. And we had to navigate that together and being collaborative and making it, making him understand like me trying to shift from an asset sale to a stock sale is not me trying to kill the deal. If that's what happens, that's what happens, but it's me trying to find a way to actually get the deal done and
0: get us where we both want to end up on this. So we did. Can you break down the difference between a stock sale and an, and a asset sale?
1: I think in most cases, most searchers in the ETA small business space are typically looking to do an asset sale. And an asset sale basically means you go create your own new corporate entity and buy the assets of the existing business. So is much more probably super common when, I don't know, it's a landscaping business and you've got trucks and mowers and things. You're buying those assets and putting them into your own business. You're buying their customer list, their contacts, all of those things. Typically those asset purchase agreements will list out all of the specific assets that you're buying. And then what you're going to do is hire the employees into your new company that were the old company's employees. And so from an outside perspective, it just looks like you acquired the business, but from an actual sort of legal perspective, you created a new business entity, bought the assets of the other business, rehired their employees, and you're you're a brand new business starting from scratch on day one, but you're not because you've bought the assets of this other business. And none of this is legal or tax advice, but there are legal and tax implications to these approaches. The nice thing in an asset sale approach is you typically don't have to acquire any of the liabilities of the previous business or so whatever they did last year or five years ago, whatever is not your problem at all because you have a brand new business. Again, not a lawyer, not the IRS. Don't quote me. Don't okay. rely on me for your advice. With a stock sale, you buy the actual business, the, the equity in the business itself, right? So American Dental Care Partners Inc existed before, and it still exists today. It used to be owned by this other guy. Now it's owned by me. And there's some continuity benefits to that. In this case, there's some regulatory compliance in a couple of states that, that I'm able to inherit with this. I've got contracts with a lot of dental providers and other types of providers in multiple parts of the country. And all of these contracts were written. This was sort of the moment when we realized we were gonna have a problem with an asset sale. They were written to not be assignable without the written consent of both parties, which meant that for me to start a new entity and acquire the business, I was going to have to get all of these dentists to sign a new contract that says, yes, I'll continue doing this with the new entity. And that was just going to be a really painful first couple months. And frankly, like, there was no way I was going to get to hundred percent. And so that was sort of the moment that led to the conversation, like, all right, we got to find a different way to do this.
0: Yeah, it sounded like that it was a uh, change by necessity rather than by choice in this case. You actually previously told me that the deal almost fell apart a few times through due diligence and that you're a bit of a nervous wreck at some points throughout the process. Was that what you were talking about?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that was that was the biggest one. Yeah, that that one was the biggest one. There were a couple of others, as is often the case in these businesses, navigating sort of some of the ad backs and the things like that that go into deciding What a business actually makes and what it's worth is, was certainly some challenging conversations. I I think we worked through those pretty effectively. They seem smaller in retrospect than the, the regulatory piece of it or the, the compliance and, and kind of contract piece of it, but certainly a factor as well on that side.
0: Totally. I think, um, Mm. there's people listening here today that maybe are listening to this conversation thinking, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to go down that route. Maybe I've read buy then build. Typically, I ask people, okay, what's the high-level step? But I feel like we've already covered a lot of those. Interestingly, Charlie Munger died, right, in the past week. And one of the things he was really famous for was inversion thinking and starting with what would not get the result that you wanted and what would get you the negative outcome of what you wanted. So I thought it could be fun potentially. I don't know, this may or may not work. But to take it a little bit different rather than like, okay, what's the five steps that you need to follow? What are the steps that you would take? to fail at acquiring a high quality business in a timely manner. All
1: right. What not to do. This is certainly another Walker Diabolism, but if you don't really have a structure and a plan and a commitment to here is what I'm trying to do, the timeline I'd like to do it on, the type of business I want to buy. If you don't have those things, if you're just sort of, it can be easy, I think, to say, ah, I'm open-minded. I'm open to anything. Let me just kind of keep looking at some things and if you don't help clarify your own thinking, if you don't have clarity on what it is that you are willing to actually go and acquire, then it's going to be hard to see anything that you can sort of run a checklist on and say, okay, this ticks the boxes and is something I would be interested in moving forward with. Before I sort of committed to actually making the search a priority, I was doing a bit of that, right? I was occasionally on the couch at night looking at Houston businesses on biz by I like, got, oh, I don't know, restaurant, sure. Why not a restaurant? Uh, landscaping business, selling some carpet, I don't know whatever it is. So yeah, that could be interesting, but those aren't going to actually get you anywhere because you can't actually line it up to what you actually think you want to do. And so, you need a clear that target statement I think is probably one of the most important pieces of this. What is it that I actually want to go and acquire? Because then every time you're looking at a business, every time you're looking at a sim, you can say like, okay, am I am I ticking the boxes in my target statement? And to be honest, the business that I bought Is probably a little bit smaller than the threshold I had set in my initial target statement. I'm not saying that sometimes I think probably people make too narrow of a target statement. And when something doesn't tick one of the boxes, they bail and they're out and it's not the perfect one. I wanted to get in the game. I wanted to buy and operate a business. I felt like the learnings were going to be in actually doing it. The searching is fun, but I didn't want to be a searcher for two years. I wanted to buy a business and I wanted to operate a business. And so I was maybe more willing To compromise a little bit where it made sense within my risk profile on that exact target in order to actually buy a business and and be doing it
0: so step one to failure is go in there very open without a clear target statement in mind waste time just scrolling websites looking at any random listing going like yeah yeah that could be interesting and kind of just like doing random searches in that way the flip side of that being going in with too tight of a statement ignoring everything and getting nowhere and staying a searcher for two, three years.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes people become searchers in order to figure out if they want to own a business and operate a business. And I think if you're still trying to figure that out, it's gonna be hard to make progress because every time you make concrete progress, you get a step closer to actually having to run a business. And if you're not sure you wanna do that, it's gonna be hard to get there. And frankly, if I had done this process two years ago, fresh out of my, my salary job at, at Uber and sort of early in a freelancing capacity, I wouldn't have been ready to actually do it. I wouldn't have known it would, I wasn't committed to actually being the owner of a small business. I think if you're actually committed to being an owner of a small business and you want to be that, and you can find a business that ticks most of the boxes, you should go for it and do it. But I think sometimes the searchers who search for a long time and aren't successful, aren't actually sure they want to be successful. And I think that's an important gut check for searchers to do.
0: There's a self-awareness piece to really determine, are you committed? We know we've set up our search terribly to ensure failure. <laughs> now we're moving into the next stage. What is the next step? And how would we fail at that?
1: So I'm thinking about, I'm actually looking at business listings. I'm maybe trying to, to talk Talking to, to some brokers, brokers, maybe that kind of thing. Yeah. At that point, I think it is important to start having some of your actual ducks in a row. And so you can, if, if you don't actually know what your current financial situation is, what you're capable
0: of buying. If you don't have some proof of your ability to actually get money. Can we drill down onto that actually? That's 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 probably a key thing. What's interesting is you went the self-funded route. One of the guys that I had on here, who's he's got a little bit of a different route and he's more like building, I guess maybe this is long-term for you, the goal as well, but he's building more of a portfolio of businesses. And his advice was the first deal is the hardest. Even if, if you can find people to partner with and even get in on 10, 20%, of the first one that maybe have got more funds and something bigger. That's what worked for him, not to discount all the other routes. But I think it's interesting to provide that balance because you went at a very different way. So when it comes to funding and getting your ducks in a row, like you said, how does that actually look for you in your case?
1: Yeah, really fair question. So so I certainly had the benefit of having been an early Uber employee and having had what turned into a successful exit. And was it life changing money? Yes. Was it retire never work again money? No. And so I had the personal financial statement that said, I want to reinvest some of my windfall here into the next growth adventure. And that's sort of what I have done in this case. And so for me, having my ducks in a row was putting together a personal financial statement that says I have money in the bank and I want to invest it. And I didn't necessarily go into it saying, I'm not gonna go get a loan. That, that ended up being what happened, right? I've acquired this business with my own capital and with a seller note. I was very open to considering bank financing and potentially a personal guarantee for the right business in the right situation. I was fortunate enough to not need to do that. And so for me, it's been nice that I've been completely in control of this situation from a financial perspective. I've not had to, there are probably lots of lessons to learn about talking to banks and talking to potential investors and all of those things. And the only person I ultimately had to convince was myself and my wife and a little bit of a different type of game. So I certainly recognize the how fortunate I was to be in a position to be able to explore search that way and know that that's not gonna be the case for everyone. But I also therefore have less of the experience on on lining up the the investor and financing piece of it.
0: That makes sense. So just on the seller note, was that kind of a given that the broker helped that conversation happen? Was that sort of a given of the deal? Or was that something that you really had to suggest or put forward? And if so, how did you do that?
1: Yeah, the, the SIM on the deal had said that the seller was open to doing a note for the right buyer. And so I knew going into the conversation with him that it was a possibility. And I think for him, honestly, I felt like that's to some extent what I was selling to him when I was trying to sell myself in that initial conversation is not only am I willing to take this business off your hands, but I think I can be successful in it. And I think that made him more comfortable with accepting the offer and offering the note. And so, yes, I, I, do think that was a, that was a factor. And that was a thing that I knew was on the table from the beginning of,
0: of the conversation with him. Okay, cool. That makes a lot of sense why it was so important to really sell yourself and your experience because his money was on the line. That's right. If you're comfortable sharing what, what's typical to expect for what a seller note could be. And if you're comfortable with sharing, what did you negotiate?
1: Yeah, fair, fair question. So what we have is a three-year note at a rate that was based on you know, sort of a prime plus at the time, but it's not floating. It's a fixed rate in our case, which is nice because I know exactly what the payment is over each month for the next three years. And that three-year timeline means it's a bigger payment than it would be if it was a longer, if you're doing a bank loan, you're probably looking at a seven or 10-year note. So the monthly is bigger, but I'll also own the whole company sooner than I, than I would in a, in a different scenario. And I do have a, a guarantee on the note. I, I didn't try to avoid that piece of it. At some point, you're going to have to put yourself on the line and say, "I I think I can make this business work." Right? So, I understand why guarantees are part of personal guarantees are part of buying businesses. It makes it makes a lot of sense. But again, sort of part of the full risk profile for me. So, that was not a contentious part of the negotiation. He had offered something pretty reasonable up front, and we probably tweaked a couple things in it. But we were pretty aligned on what the note could look like from the beginning.
0: Man, there's so much to consider in in a deal like this. That's why you got to get in there and do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all, All of
1: this stuff, like. I've done it now and so it feels like yeah that was part of the conversation had you talked to me six months ago like wouldn't have thought about any of it and so the experience of actually doing it i think is is huge there's a place for the the whole process of doing the learning but frankly buy the build was a bit of a like every step of the process i went back to the, like I, I probably read each chapter progressively each time i got to a new chapter in the actual process right and so i submitted an offer okay wait what do i do now let me go back to that and i'd read it again and then okay i did the, the accepted the offer now we're in the due diligence chapter i'm going to read the, due the read the whole book again. Closest thing to a a Bible for me in this process was, was Biden Belt. Walker
0: is not paying me for this, by the way. I've never, never met or talked to him. He might be soon if you keep going. There you go. (laughs) If you keep making more podcast appearances. You bought your mic now, so you're already. I did buy the mic, yeah. This has been such a good conversation. I feel like we've got so much more clarity on how to approach buying a business, what to look out for, how to actually do it quite fast because with your case, we've seen what has maybe helped you in that journey and what to look out for. The key message really just being get in there, carve out the time and take the action because you are going to learn as you go and then seek external counsel where it's necessary. Just as a wrap up, where's the best place for people to find you if they say they want to get in touch with you or you put any content out there, any updates on the business, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, I I enjoy um, one of the things that's fun to me about buying a business and doing it myself is I can build in public as much as I want to. And so. I've been writing, tweeting, interacting a bit, Xing. What do we call it now? Posting? I think like they call it posting. It's, it's so
0: months. confusing to me because I just want to say, yeah, I'm tweeting on Twitter. X does my head in, to tell you the truth.
1: I, I'm on X. R, as in Robert, Zach, Z-A-C-H, Smith, at R, Zach Smith. I'm happy to interact with any and everyone there. That's probably the easiest place to find me these days.
0: Awesome, man. And I can vouch for that. I reached out on DMs. We got chatting. And before he knew it, he was on the pod. And he even went out and bought his own microphone for the pod. So... <laughs> He's, uh, he he won't let you down and he put some good content out there. It's really good stuff. Thanks, Jack. Thanks so much, Jack. All right. That's the conversation with Zach Smith. Man, it was so good to get access to a first-time business buyer who had just made the leap and closed on that first deal especially someone who did it so decisively and in such an accelerated manner in the past i know i've been guilty of hesitating and procrastinating and although i've taken some steps to address this with my 12 week year execution system which by the way i detailed in episode 4 of this podcast zach's journey offered a ton of invaluable takeaways to make even more decisive moves like carving out time in his schedule and treating the acquisition process as if it were a client or his analytical risk profile approach to quickly determine whether this was a suitable business opportunity to act on. Or even just the simple mentality to step up to the plate and take more swings, because it could be the hundredth swing that hits, in which case you better get started. Or as it was for Zach, it could be the first one and you're just around the corner from completely changing your life. But you'll never know unless you actually start taking swings. Anyways, my friends, thank you so much as always. As per usual, if you got a lot out of this podcast, if you enjoyed Zach's story, if it inspired you to go looking at buying a business or you've just got some new ideas from this that is going to help you on your small business journey, all it asks is that you share this podcast with one friend. It's as simple as opening up your podcast app, whether that's Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Hitting send, sharing it with one friend, it'll take you 10 seconds, but it'll help make a big difference to growing this audience because the more that we can grow this audience, the better guests that we can get. And the better guests that we can get, the better small business owners we can all become. So once again, thank you. I'll catch you on the next episode. And until then, keep getting after it.